Hello and welcome to Fun Problems. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And today we have a very special episode. Why is that, AJ? Because we don't have Alex Horn. Yes, he's uh, had a great run with us. What's even the point? We have to move on, Peter. So this is Fun Problems, the problems of fun. This is a game design podcast where we talk about the fun problems of designing a game. And a game is really just a series of fun problems. So that's why it's called that. And that's, so that's our standard intro. That's the scripted <laughs> intro we always do. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. And what are we talking about today, AJ? Today we're talking about probably one of the worst games i've played in the last few years <laughs> that time you killed me it's designed by it says here peter c hey peter oh. chaywood it's pronounced chaywood thank you Ooh, this is awkward so we're doing another design diary episode our last one got some very positive reaction i guess mm-hmm. our, our last two we did one for cartouche in a sense yeah yeah i really like doing these part of it's for me is that I don't read very well. I have ADD, so I find it very hard to keep focused on reading, but I really like the audio format. And I haven't been able to find too many audio design diaries of games. So maybe a lot exist in print that I just don't know about. I know Gabe Barrett does one for each of his games that he publishes. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, through the Board Game Design Lab. So they're definitely worth a listen because he dives into not only the the design of the games, but also the art process and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I think for his first one, he did a series. I might be misremembering that. But yeah, if, if you enjoy Board Game Design Lab, which you should, it's excellent. You'll enjoy his design diaries a lot. Yeah, so I think they're really interesting and I don't see too many other people doing it. And I find it super fascinating to see the process, especially because as we were talking about before we started recording, there's a lot of games that you'll play and it'll be like, oh, this is so clear and so obvious and so well thought out. Well, it wasn't probably that way to begin <laughs> with, right? It probably went through a lot of iterations before they got to the obvious, clear right answer right. for everything. And I, I'll mention up front that I did do a design diary for Board Game Geek for that time you killed me, which was very popular. Check that out. AJ will put a link in the show notes. And so this one's going to be a little bit different in that we're going to go full spoilers. Do you, do you want to describe what that time you killed me is? Yes. Yeah, so that time you killed me, which is actually really good, by the way, is I think the first game that does time travel right in a board game, arguably anachrony, but there's a lot of controversy with that. But in the game, it's kind of like 4D chess where you've got three different playing boards and you're playing an abstract strategy that encompasses all three boards. There's the past, the present, and the future. And the actions that you take in earlier timelines are going to affect the ones in future timelines. But in future timelines, you can go back in time. So it's all about time travel and taking out the other person. Thematically, you and your opponent are both arguing that you came up with the time travel and you're not sure who actually did because you've gotten through so many time loops. (laughs) And so you're just trying to kill the other person so you can say that you did it. And, and notably, it's a campaign game, which yes. is also unusual for an abstract. So I think it's probably the first campaign abstract. I'd have to think so. And so Pandasaurus, who are the publisher, I did not publish this one through Jellybean. This one is through Pandasaurus Games, who did Dinosaur Island and many other games, Machikoro, a bunch of other games. They really marketed heavily as like, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. We're not going to tell you what's in it past the first chapter. So that's how I've, I've been mostly treating it on social media and online, stuff like that. This one, we're going to... Dive right in. <laughs> Dive right in. Look at the look behind the curtain. So we're, so again, last last chance now for spoiler warning. If if you haven't played this and you want to be spoiled, you don't want to be spoiled, then stop listening, go play it, and then come back and listen to the episode. So we went through the basic idea of what that time you killed me is. But do you want to go into a little bit more detail as to the way that the actual mechanics work? Do we want to be specific here? Or? Rather than go into like on your turn, you may do this. I'll just say that the base game you only have the one type of pawn. So you have just one type... Pawn, for our (laughs) international listeners. P-A-W-N, I do have an accent. You have one type of token, and that is you. And so you have you in the past, you in the present, you in the future. On your turn, you choose one era to activate. So you might be in in the present, and you get to take two actions. And then at the end of your turn, you choose where you'll be activating next turn. 
So the opponent knows which of the three boards you'll be activating next turn. That's the base game. You win by eliminating your opponent from two of the three boards. Yeah, and I'll just add a little bit. So like I said before, the actions that you take in the past will affect the present and the future boards in the same spaces as the whatever objects are in there. And if you go back in time, you basically create an extra pawn because you went back and then eventually you'll age back up to that point. In the yeah, the, the way I was explaining it is, AJ, if you went back in time one week and then waited a week, you'd be here again. So when you go back in time, you put a copy of yourself from your supply into the space you left from because that represents you just waiting a week and coming back. When you go forward in time, no such thing happens. So the, the fun of the game is sort of manipulating these three boards and, and trying to set up set up a turn where you can go forward and, and surprise kill someone or go forward and then put your focus there for the next turn etc and that's the base game and the base game is not recommended to be played by itself this is the most common mistake i see people make <laughs> the base game only exists as a basic framework and then there's four chapters that come in the box well i think we'll go into those in a little bit so obviously it's a very thematic game and the theme is super tied into the mechanics so i'm assuming you started with the idea of i want to make a time travel game is that accurate so i was watching a youtube video and I'll, I'll send a link to you so you can put it in the show notes. But it was basically someone constructed 4D chess. Hmm. So it was a chess board stacked on top of itself twice, three times. So if you're moving a, a rook, you could move up, you could move the normal two dimensions, or you could move back through the three kind of stacks. So you could move up twice as a rook move, and then the next turn you could move back twice, two things, and go from the bottom right to the top left in two moves. Or if you're a bishop, you could do that as one move, because that's moving through two dimensions. And they basically, it was, it was a YouTube gimmick, it was a stunt. He was like, we've, we've made a 4D chessboard, because uh, normal chess is 2D, 3D is the stack, 4D is having the three of them. And they played a full game of it, and it took them something like 11 hours, and they <laughs> were miserable the whole time. It's just, it's not fun. And I was watching that, and I thought, you could, you could do it. Like, you could do a sort of 4D chess sort of thing. So I sat down with my little iPad and just sketched out the three boards and then how you would move between them. And that eventually became, and very quickly, I think even while watching the video, I was like, well, you would just make the, the, the new dimension time. And so I quickly sketched out three boards, moving forward and backwards through time, playing chess. And as I often do with my designs, I started with the simplest possible. So it was just one type of token. There wasn't like knights and kings and queens and bishops and all that. It was just one type of token and you're moving around. So yeah, the mechanics and theme came kind of hand in hand right from the start. So did you ever feel like the theme restricted you while you were designing then or was it something that actively helped you while you were designing because it seems like in a lot of cases restriction breeds creativity in this case it seems like it would actively give you a lot of material to work off of instead of just starting an abstract from scratch yeah it was definitely the the material side of things i i think i've talked about this on the show before i can't design uh, like an actual abstract like so we just finished a kickstarter for the new village pillage expansion and it's robin hood themed and as I do, every time I have to come up with anything, I can't just sit down and come up with 20 cards. But if I can work out like 20 Robin Hood characters, I can come up with a card for each of them, no sweat. So similarly, I was like, well, what can you do with time travel? And that quickly turned into, oh, you could do this, you could do that, you could do that. So exactly what you're saying. I don't think I could design a pure abstract, like an actual Go style abstract. Because I just, yeah, I don't know. Well, my, I, my brain doesn't work that way. I don't have anything to, to latch onto. And so technically you did, and that's like the very base version of it, but you're saying like that's not the way that it's intended to be played. It's more Well, even the base version is still time travel. True. So there true. is a theme to it. 
But with the with the theme removed, it wouldn't be that much different to like a shobu or something where it's like, oh, if I move the tile on this board, it affects another board or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It's funny because in my mind, the the moving backwards one and, and reappearing a week later, that came from theme. That wasn't me being like, right. how do I fix this? That was like, how would time travel work? And I think I tried a few different things. The original, the very first version of the game you had to mark and, and this was purely in sketch form i never play tested this because i was immediately like oh this doesn't work the the very 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 first version was when you move backwards then you call that one and the one that comes forward is one a oh <laughs> and if you kill one then one a also dies so it really did come from theme it was way more thematic and then i had to scale it back to what it is in the game today so were there any other changes from the very very original one so but, and this is just purely sketch like i think i sketched it out put it aside for a few hours went to a cafe sat down to play it against myself and then was immediately like oh this is unplayable how can i simplify 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 so the original version had time machines hmm. and so a space on each of the three board was the time machine you had to get to the time machine to travel in time and then there were other spaces it was way too complex that you could like drop a thing that prevented people from time traveling from that space just <laughs> stuff like that i look back now i'm like that's a lot of work peter none mm. of that needed to be in the game but that's what i mean when i say like i started purely thematic mm. and then scaled it down scaled it down scaled it down until it was playable by the way that's a really interesting note on letting players do the cool thing more because the cool thing is time travel right. and you had to be in a specific spot to time travel and your opponent could take actions to stop you from time traveling yeah as opposed to the way that the game works now, which is just you can do it from anywhere, and there's no effect, as I remember, from any of the modules that stops you from time. There is time. one player power. It's called, I think it's called Chrono Anchor or something like that. And if you're adjacent to an opponent, they can't time travel. I like that name, by the way. Thank you. The, coming up with the names. We'll get into that, but yeah. the names was very, very fun to come up with. So you were talking about the early designs and how it was just a bit messy, and so you scaled it back. Was there anything in the versions that came right after that that revealed much about the design or that you had to change dramatically or that gave you a lot of direction so i've told this story before in other design diaries interviews which is that i mentioned that there are four chapters and three of those chapters just full modules so the first one is seeds second one is statues third one is elephants the original version of the game the very first one that i first ever play tested had all of that <laughs> just immediately everything because i was like gotcha. it's a time travel game so i want to put in these seeds i want to put in these statues that do the thing i think they're actually castles at the time because i was still thinking chess so they were like rooks and then these elephants that did a completely different thing that they do nowadays that was all in there right from the start because i was kind of like it's a time travel game well, what does that mean like if you've got past present future what can you do in the past that affects the present and the future and so i came up with all of those things put them all in does this answer your question yeah yeah since we're talking about the modules now, do you want to go into the modules, like the design of them and how you parceled out what would come first, what would come last? Yeah, so like I said, at the start it was just everything. So the three modules are the seeds, it's called growth. In If you plant a seed in that same space in the next era, it becomes a shrub. And a shrub, is, the way that you win this game is by killing your opponent and you kill your opponent by pushing him into walls. So it's not like chess where when you land on the space, they die. If you move into their space, you push them, sort of like a chips challenge, where you like push boulders around, sort of like that, but with your opponent. So if you push your opponent into a wall, so that the four walls of the board, they die. And if you push your opponent into themselves, then both copies die, because that causes a paradox. Love that one. Thank you. That was original. Oh, here's, here's a big change. This is actually a change that developers did. Originally, it was if you were adjacent to yourself, it was a paradox. Oh, wow. Which really tightened up the board. <laughs> and okay. I, when they told me they were getting rid of that, I was like, but... But like, you could just go anywhere at any time. They're like, yeah, because otherwise you can't go anywhere ever. And I was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that makes sense. So 
the seed grows into a shrub and the shrub acts like a wall. So if you push someone into it, then they die. In the next era, it becomes a tree and the tree is a freestanding piece that if you move into the tree, it falls over. So you lay it down. And if there's anything in the space it falls into, that dies. So you want to ideally crush your opponent, but you can crush shrubs. Originally, I think this is all changed in the final version. You could crush seeds, you could crush elephants, etc. So that was the first module, growth. Second module is called influence. And you have these statues. So you can build a statue. And when you build a statue, it builds in all three eras. If you push a statue, it pushes the same distance in every future era. So if you push it up one in the past, no matter where it is in the next era, it moves up one. In the future, it moves up one as well. And because you could push it in the present and it would only move in the future, not the past, they can come out of line. And so you can end up with these situations where you can push one and it'll crush someone and then it'll push a tree over or whatever in the third one. The original version of elephants that I designed was there was two elephants in the past, one elephant in the present, and none in the future. When you were next, when you were orthogonally, this whole game is orthogonal. So when you're orthogonally next to an elephant, you could command it and you could move it any of the eight directions, including diagonal. So that was sort of the thing about elephants is they could move diagonally. And I think originally they just pushed. So you could push things diagonally. It ran into this weird thing where like if you push someone diagonally into a wall, do they glance against the wall? Do they get crushed into the wall? And you could ride the elephants. So you could move onto an elephant and now you're riding this elephant moving diagonally. (laughs) But if you're on an elephant, you're vulnerable because if someone pushes you, you fall off the elephant and die. So that was the original. This is nothing like the actual yeah, final Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, it's not, not like this at all. And the reason that I like this so much is that if you ever moved an elephant into another elephant, an elephant would appear in the next era in that spot. Oh. Geez. So you could, you could breed the elephants and have <laughs> elephants appear later on. Hmm. I thought that was the funniest, cutest, like most time travel thing you could possibly do. The developers were completely right to cut it. Hmm. At the time, I was so in love with that idea. Yeah, kill your darlings, kill, tragically. Oh, yeah. Pa- get, get, get other people to kill your darlings. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those are the three modules. And like I said, in the original version, it started with seeds and statues and elephants all at once. And I played it with Marek Tupi, who's a local game designer at one of the game nights that you might have been at. Yeah, I met him briefly. Yep. No, that you might have been at the, the first playtest. Oh, cool, uh, yeah. And he was just like, Peter, this is overwhelming. Like, <laughs> I can't pass what's going on, let alone actually strategize and make make clever decisions that that work so i i sat down and i was like maybe my reference card just isn't good enough so i read <laughs> the reference card and brought it again people were like my head is exploding trying to play this game because not only is it time travel but there's there's you and then there's the three other components that not only had their own rules of time travel like the breeding and the planting and the moving but also interacted with each other in different yeah. ways <laughs> so it's what's it called set theory where you have like four things and every connection between those four things is also a thing and suddenly and this is all on top of the i don't think it's unintuitive but it takes a game or two to understand the time travel so you had to learn the time travel and the time travel of all the three objects and how they interact and strategize and how to win it was impossibly too much it was unplayable by humans and so that i I didn't know what to do for a long time i was genuinely just like do i just publish two of the modules like how does this work because i always want to make the best game yeah like i don't don't want to be like hey here's a bunch of ideas make your own game and i just i couldn't work out like how to do it and then i was playing with his name steve torres who's actually the graphic designer at pandasaurus who ended up working on this game this is well before it was signed or anything like that i played it with him and he just loved it he just went nuts for this game we were at gamma which is the professional convention for board games and he just kept on coming back and playing it again and again and again. Because at this point, I'd split out the three modules. And I was supposed to play testing one module. And he was like, great, again, again. <laughs> and I was like, I have other modules. He was like, cool. And so we played all the modules and we played them in combination. 
And he said to me, and I really think remember this, he was like, this is such a cool sandbox like to mm. play in. And I was like, oh, it could be a sandbox game. Like I could publish it with the three modules and you choose which ones to go in. And then I was like, but how, how would people learn? Because again, I don't want to be like, hey, you've chosen to play this game. Now choose which game within this game to play. Yeah. And so that's when I came up with the idea of the campaign. And that's when I thought, I think I've got something here. Because like you said at the start, this wasn't me setting out to design a time travel campaign. <laughs> this was me trying to design a game that what happened to be time travel and happened to be abstract. And then the best way to do it just happened to be a campaign. But as a result of all that, there's nothing else quite like it. <laughs> uh, and so I, I pitched this to John Gilmore, who was the Pandasaurus scout at the time. And I just played the base game. And I was like, and there's modules and it's a campaign. He's like, well, show me the campaign then. Like, you can't just say there's a campaign. And so I went away and wrote the first, like, third of the campaign, basically, and brought it back and pitched it and it got signed. That's a very long-winded way of saying, like, that's how those modules came to be separate and a campaign and all this kind of stuff. It really did start with everything all at once and then just got whittled down and whittled down and whittled down and then segmented. And then once it was segmented, it made total sense for it to be a campaign. So that's the three modules but that's not the player powers so player powers are the last one yes so the first three chapters are those three modules growth influence and memory which is the memory is the elephants of course (laughs) the fourth chapter is called i think confluence and it comes in two parts the first part is combining them so you play a game with the trees and the statues and you play a game with the trees and the elephants and you play a game with the elephants and the statues and then you play a game with all of them and it's funny, this game's been out for probably about six months now, and that's as far as I've ever seen anyone talk about, ever. Obviously, I know, like, I've gotten messages from players being like, hey, how does this player power work? But that's everything that, like, if, if you're publicly looking at this game, you would have no idea there were player powers. Because people only talk about the three modules and how they combine. And in fairness, there's a lot of game there. Yeah, <laughs> Like, absolutely. Shobu doesn't have any of that, and Shobu is endlessly replayable. I and mean, so this one has more, quote-unquote, content than Shobu and different combinations, but the second half of chapter four, and this is something I was really excited for, is Santorini-style player powers. So I saw how Santorini did the player powers, and I was like, I love that. And this game is sandboxy enough, and I love coming out with content, that I was like, I could design a hundred fun player powers. <laughs> like, this is, this is really fun for me. I, I don't actually know how many there are in the final game. I would guess around 30. Wow, that many? Yeah, there's a lot, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so the way that it's structured is when you get to the final half of the, of the fourth chapter you open up an envelope and it has four player powers in it. And it says, you play these, here's how player powers work. There's a draft mode where you put all four out and one player chooses, the other player chooses, and the second player chooses who goes first, something like that. Or there's a shared power, which is for people who don't want like asymmetry. So you just choose one power and both players have access to that power. Those are the two game modes of the powers. And then there are, I want to say maybe nine envelopes and each of them has an achievement printed on it. So an achievement might be something like crush someone with an elephant, win the game with your opponent having zero copies on the board, all kinds of just different things that you can do. So it's like Steam achievements or like iOS achievements, because I really like playing a game with a weird goal in mind. So as we've discussed on the show, I play Endless Istanbul, and I have unlocked, I think, every Istanbul achievement (laughs) on Steam, which is stuff like win a game without upgrading your caravan, win a game in less than seven minutes, win a game against all four opponents, etc. Like anything you can do in that game. So there's a list of achievements and I just like those little goals. So that time you killed me comes with a bunch of these envelopes and each envelope has four new player powers in it. So every time you unlock an achievement, you, you write your name on it. And that's sort of the big campaign, whoever writes the name on the most envelopes. But as well as that, you get these new player powers that you can mix into the deck and play, etc. That's really cool. I, I 
we've talked before about unlockable content and how that just keeps it so exciting and so yeah. fresh. In a lot of games, you'd have like, oh, here's a new I don't know, sword or whatever. And maybe the ability of the sword is a little bit more complex that you would unlock later. I haven't seen it too often where it's like so many little drip feeds of new stuff but each one has such a big impact charterstone i think does a pretty good job of this really okay charterstone as you play charterstone you keep on unlocking envelopes whatever and a lot of them will be new player powers cool okay i don't feel that those are particularly balanced i got one of those and i won our campaign by like a third because like have you played charterstone i haven't played charterstone oh i have issues with charterstone um I think, I think it does a lot of good stuff. And I think it does a lot of stuff that I just wish had been boiled for a little bit longer before it was served. But Charterstone's base mechanic, I'm going to jump into this, is that every time <laughs> you put out a worker, you only have two workers. If you have no workers, you have to pull them back. That's your action. Later in the game, you get these mini workers that you can put out in your own kind of district. But essentially, it's play a worker, play a worker, pull back workers. Anyone can go to a space with your worker and they get your worker back straight away. So you sort of want to go to a place where someone else wants to go because you'll get your worker back. It's an interesting little mechanic. The player power I unlocked was you can pull back your workers for free. So I just got a third more actions than anyone else. And they sort of like softly encourage you to try different player powers because you end up with a whole collection of them. You choose one per game. And so I played one game after unlocking this. I played one game without it. And I was like, why would I ever not choose? Like, it's just so powerful. So powerful, and also it kind of removes the fundamental mechanic of the game, because now you don't care if people bounce back your workers because you just get them anyway. It was a very weird choice. So hopefully the that time you killed me powers are not that unbalanced, <laughs> but there, there are a lot of them, and they're themed to the envelopes. They're a lot of fun. And then once you've unlocked every other envelope, there's a final envelope that says, unlock this once you've unlocked all the other envelopes. That one contains, I think, seven or eight different game modes, because <laughs> I love this kind of sandbox stuff. So one of them, like, instead of planting seeds, you can plant your opponent's pieces. And, like, one of them is the old paradox method, where if you're adjacent to yourself, then it's a paradox. Okay. But if you do it to yourself, you can move, instead of them both dying, you can move one of them anywhere on the board. One of them is, is called past mistake. There's no past board. You're only playing on the two boards now. And there's, wow. like, rules around that. So, we, I re- like, with this game, more than anything else I've ever made, there is 10 years of content in there. <laughs> I was going to say, your superpower has always been generating lots of content, and, like, this is this it I, I, got, I got to flex. I really got to just, like, <laughs> fill it with content. And so, like I said, not only have I never heard anyone talk about the player powers, mm. I don't even know if anyone's unlocked that final envelope. <laughs> you can open them at any time, of course, but gamers being gamers, they're more likely to wait until they've earned it. And some of those unlock conditions are quite tricky. What you should have done is, in the very last envelope, be like, if you got here legit, send me an email or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if anyone listening to this has unlocked it, let me know because I would love to. I've never seen anyone discuss any of this stuff. And it's, mm. Like I said, Santorini is obviously a very good game. That existed without the player powers for a long time. And then the, the draw of modern Santorini, I think, is the player powers. So That Time You Killed Me has all of that at the end of a campaign. You play, what's that, nine, 13 games before even getting to the player powers. And then, yeah, they, they unlock over drips and drabs. I also love how what you've done is have drip-fed rules in the game as well, functionally. So you start off super simple, and not only is it just like the amount of rules that you have, but the control over the rules. So like you have different right. game modes, but we've talked before about how that's really overwhelming to players. They already pulled the box off the shelf. Yeah. They don't want to have to make more decisions. But if you've already gone through all that content, yeah. <laughs> you've earned the extra modes. You're a veteran player yeah. at that point. And then and, those and extra they're a little gimmicky mean... too. And they're, they're mostly inspired by Plants vs. Zombies. Have you ever played Plants vs. Zombies? I did, yeah. Great game. So they had a bunch of mini games, And that's essentially mm-hmm. what it is. There's the zombie bowling minigame and all that. And I was just like, I want to have a bunch of mini games. They're all in that final envelope. But yeah, like you said, it's for the veteran players. So... A big question I have from listening to everything you were just talking about is 
how the heck do you design a rule book when the content and everything is unlockable? Do you just have the rules on reference cards and not have the complete rules in the rule book? So what I wanted, and I got I got outvoted on this one. Again, probably correctly. I didn't want a rule book. Whoa. Yeah, I wanted to do it Friedman Freeze fable style, yeah. where Flea is one of my favorite games. I really like Flea, which is just a little four-player co-op, pure co-op too, with no rule book. You open the box, it's just a deck of cards, you look at the first card and it tells you how the basic game works, the second card tells you how like the next thing works, and then as you go you'll find new rules within. So when I pitched this game, it was the boxes, which had the pawns and the trees and the elephants and the statues, and a deck of cards, and that was it. No rulebook. So Jeff Fraser, who is my cartouche co-designer who we've had on the show before, he ended up doing a lot of the dev on this, and especially the rulebook. And he, he playtested and he was like, look, it's just not fun to try to find a specific rule and it's on a card somewhere. I've done a lot of work to make the cards. The front was like the quick reference. And so if you're like, wait, how does paradox work? You can check the front and then flip it over for like the exceptions and stuff like that. It was sort of like a basic rules on the front and then clarifications on the back. And he was like, it's just not fun to have to have all these cards out when you're playing, especially once you combine all the modules, you need like 15 cards sitting at the side that you need to reference. So there is a rule book. And it just has the big stop, don't read any for each of the things. It doesn't go into any details about any of the player powers. It was really important to me that we didn't have a player power reference. Hmm. And I think so far I've only had maybe two questions on BGG, just being like, wait, how exactly does this work? And I've had to clarify, but considering, again, how many player powers that is, that's pretty good. Yeah, how many player powers and how many different mechanics they interact right. with, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so far there's only been, I think, two of those. We tried really hard to make those as autonomous and atomic as possible, but there is just a full rule book and you learn from the rules. That's really interesting. I wonder if there was a way to have it where the, the full rule book is designed but designed as a reference, not as anything else. So you still have the cards, but then if you need something, you go back to the rules. Yeah, I I think the thing is too that Jeff is really good at rule books. Yeah. So it's sort of like, why not play into his greatest of all strengths? Mm -hmm. Why why take Beethoven and be like, cool, can you make me a cup of coffee? Like, (laughs) make him write you some music, perhaps. So Jeff was very much playing to his strengths. And the the game is all the better for it, for sure. So I guess you just have reference cards then as you unlock stuff? Yeah. So at the start of the game, there's one reference card per player for the base rules. And there's one shared reference card for the trees, one for the elephants, and one for the statues, and that's it. Gotcha. So you'd like unlock the box, take a look at the stuff, say, whoa, this is cool, flip open the rule book, read through the rules quickly, start playing. Yeah, and- exactly. Gotcha. And the rule book is excellent. It is the most complimented rule book I've ever seen. A, because Jeff is really damn good at what he does. And B, and we haven't even mentioned this yet, I'm a comedy writer. So the campaign that I wrote is, he said modestly, very funny. Mm. And all throughout the rule book, so originally it was on the cards. It'll be like, rule, 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 and then in a different font in smaller writing, joke. Rule, 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 joke. And so we managed to move all of those into the rule book. And so now the rule book is nicely thematic, which again is unusual for an abstract, but also very funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My favorite reviewer is Dan Thurit of Space Biff. And he said that in his review, he said, this is the only game I'll ever say, do not skip the flavor text, <laughs> which is very kind of him. It's um, a very high... Yeah, and so the rulebook is not only excellent because Jeff did an amazing job of like laying it out and making it all very clear, but also because it has non-intrusive jokes. Like they're not in the rules text. It's mm-hmm. just like you've read a rule. Cool. Here's a little joke. Here's another rule. Here's a joke. It's funny. I was listening to a reviewer and they were like, "This isn't for me," but they were like, "Man, I loved reading the rulebook." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've never seen any game get as many compliments on the rulebook. Maybe Galaxy Trucker, which also has a very good and funny rulebook, but yeah. Galaxy Trucker gets a lot of complaints about the rulebook because they did the two separate rulebooks thing. True. Yeah, one thing that I think you and Galaxy Trucker are the only two games I know that do this is they'll use jokes to reinforce the rules. Mm. 
So the one I remember from Galaxy Trucker is there was, if you run out of gas, you can't use this like engineer because like they'll help your engine work better, but they're not going to get out and push or something. <laughs> um, there's, there's one joke that has caused one one instance of rule confusion, maybe more. Someone asked on the BGG forums, how do I get in the same space as an elephant? And their answer is you can't move into the same space as an elephant. Oh, the final elephant rules are nothing like what I described earlier. Instead, there's, there's a starting pink and purple elephant in each of the three ears. When you're adjacent to it, you can train an elephant, which involves putting a hat of your color on the elephant. And then on that elephant and every elephant of that color going forward. Once you've got a trained elephant, you can move them instead of you as an action and they crush your opponents. So if you train an elephant in the past, then you get all three elephants for present and future. Next turn, if you go to the future, you can move that elephant twice and kill your opponent that way. And so that was all Alex and uh, Jeff, Alex Cutler and Jeff Fraser, who did the dev on this. That was all them. I didn't mm. come up with any of that. I was just like, elephants. And they were like, well, we don't like your elephants, so we're going to come up with our own elephants, which they did a really good job of. I really like that system. So there's a, a good joke in the rule book, which is, it says you can't move in the same space as an elephant. And then it says, you can try, but they'll give you a real funny look. And then later there's another thing of like, there is a rare case where if you move in the same space as an elephant, it causes an elephant-human hybrid with the powers of both. But that's very rare and not worth worrying about. Just a joke. But someone right. internalized, oh, you can sometimes move into the same space. And so that's the only joke I can think of that has caused some confusion. Like you said, most of them are there to reinforce the rules. Yeah, so let's go into the tone a bit more. Usually goofy, funny games, which this is definitely a goofy and funny game, <laughs> is reserved for kids' games and party games, not abstract strategies. I mean, Santorini is a little playful, but it's, it's definitely not a funny game. What caused you to lean into that tone? Is it just your writing background? Like, what, what even caused you to have, like, a story to go along with this? Well, once I, once I decided there had to be a campaign to teach trees and elephants and statues and all that, I was like, well, if there's going to be a campaign, there has to be a story. Hmm. And time travel is so ripe for story. Such a verdant field of like, you can tell really interesting time travel stories. So I, I just sat down and started writing and came up with the whole thing of, you open the box and there's a letter. So the first thing you see is a letter and it says, hey, you two, right now you are friends, but in the future, one of you designs the time machine and the other one kills them. Hmm. The trouble is we don't know who is who. So you're going to play this game. Well, it doesn't say play this game, but you're going to do some time travel to prove that you are either the murderer or the inventor. And then for the whole rest of the thing, this letter writer is constantly being like, I like you, inventor. So then for the rest of the campaign, the letter writer is like, I like you, inventor. I hate you, murderer. I just wish I knew which one was which. It just seemed like a very natural, why are you fighting over time travel? Decide who invented, etc. And the game, it's, it's not... I guess it is goofy. Like, why elephants? It's always been <laughs> elephants, right from the first draft. I had those little squirrels from that Vlada Shavatl game, so I mm. used squirrels, but it was always going to be elephants. It was always going to be, like, hats on them, too? <laughs> no, I, I really wanted hats. Once they told me how the training mechanic worked, I was like, they've got to be wearing hats. They've got to be wearing hats. <laughs> that was my favorite part of the whole game, is <laughs> when I was playtesting, you're like, and here's the little hat you get. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was always that plot. And then, because I am a comedy writer, I think it was just very natural to write comedy. And I knew I could write jokes, like, like I knew I could Vlada Shavatl style just have jokes after every... Because I had all these cards and I wanted to keep them interesting. I didn't want to be like, here's another rule, here's another rule. So I started writing plot and that turned into jokes and that turned into jokes and that turned into jokes. So writing is a very hard thing to do in board games. I find that most people skip over text in board games, particularly if there's like a big chunk of story. 
And most of the time when people read it, they just sort of skim over it and don't really care. So apart from obviously just being a good writer, do you have any tips for how to integrate writing into board games in a way that players are going to like? I wish I did, because <laughs> I think you asked me, I'm staying in your house at the moment, this is an in-person episode. So you asked me earlier on this trip, like, hey, you're going to do more writing in games? And I, I, I wish, I would love to. I just like other than writing more campaign games, which are a lot of work, I don't know how to integrate that. So I have been trying to put more of my flavor into games, whether it's in the rules or I'm working on a game at the moment called Movie Night, which I'm convinced we haven't discussed because it didn't exist last time I recorded. Yeah, for sure. And that has like little conditions. So like the movie has to be made in the last 20 years or it has to have a scene set in the US. And then again, because I don't want to have a rule book with references for all of these cards. I really don't like that. I like the cards to be as self-sufficient as possible. So at the bottom of each card, I've just got a little like single sentence to help clarify anything. So last 20 years, and then it says at the bottom, year of release. Check Wikipedia if you're not sure. But not every card needed that. So with scenes in the US, I put including Florida, which is just a, <laughs> just a little dig at Florida, just a little joke. So I'm trying to put more of those jokes into games, but in terms of getting to sit down and write a whole plot and stuff like that, it's, it's hard to find the opportunity because like you said, people open the rule book, first page is law, cool, skip that, let's get to the main thing. So Village Pillage has always had the little bits of personality and stuff like that. Dominion, I think, does a really good job of the blurb on the back of each one. It's just funny. It's just a funny blurb on the back of every Dominion expansion. Hmm. But that's as far as it goes because that's as far as it needs to go. So I would love to have more ways to integrate it, maybe do a Ryan Lockhart style game, but so far I've not really found many. Yeah, that seems more your forte because you do a lot of Euro-y type designs and stuff. And most of the games that have done story better, I've found have been air trashy things. Mm. Yeah, obvious reasons. But like Kingdom Death Monster we've discussed earlier is my personal pick for best story game because you do have those writing chunks, but they're small and they're interspersed with gameplay. Well, that was one thing with that time you killed me is there's no big chunks. Like I, mm. I guess, so on the I mentioned that there's a reference card for each of the, of the things. On the back of those, that was all the space I had for like story. So it's always a card's worth of story. And I actually got the InDesign files directly from Steve-O so I could write it exactly into how it finally fit to like make perfect use of it and not have hyphenated words over lines, which drives me nuts and stuff like that. But I didn't have a whole page of the rule book. The opening letter is the exception, the opening letter, but that explains the whole premise. And I'm pretty sure the opening letter is why this game got signed <laughs> mm. because John really liked it. He brought it to Nathan and Molly who owned Pandasaurus and they read the letter and they were just cackling and they were like, this is great. It's got personality. Oh, I guess we have to play the game as well. But really, like, I think they signed <laughs> the letter <laughs> it's, it's interesting because like a lot of designers when they're pitching you can be nervous and you might not be sure like what could get your game signed it could be something as simple as that right? right where it's like something that just catches their eye or something that helps you stand out that's something that charms the publisher in some way or another yeah and john was absolutely right when i pitched him the game i was like imagine this is a campaign he's like don't make me imagine this is a campaign <laughs> bring me what it looks like as a campaign you talked about having just too much stuff to fit into the game were there any other like big problems that you had to solve during the course of design or were most of them just small tweaks to the rules and stuff like the paradox change that you made so the version that i handed over is quite different to what came back as mentioned they made the paradox not adjacent anymore which freed up a lot of movement on the board it used to be quite constrained i don't mind constrained play but it's less fun it's just objectively less fun and i never think to do that mm. so you're, you're always trying to design and solve puzzles yeah exactly i like a puzzle whereas a little bit of freedom goes a long way so generally speaking my first 10 drafts of any game are just cutting rules cutting rules cutting rules cutting rules i'm working a roll and ride at the moment sunshine city which you played once and mm. that one it has you basically unlock more production from each of the seven districts and you do that by crossing off things in these little columns. 
And in the first version, you had to cross them off left to right. You had to do the leftmost one, then the next one, the next one. It was very restrictive. And it was probably like draft seven or eight when I was finally like, oh, you can do anywhere. And the game just got better. <laughs> like you just take away these arbitrary restrictions. And if you can make the answer to every player question, yes. Oh, can I do? Yes. Can I? Yes. Always yes. Now, obviously up to a certain point, you can't be like, oh, can I just scribble out every box on the first turn? No, that doesn't make sense. But the intuitive answer is always yes, basically. And so, yeah, when I, when I signed it, the player powers were dispersed throughout the whole campaign. The final thing is four chapters. Mine was 15 chapters. And a chapter would be like, here's some player powers. The next chapter would be like, here's the seeds, but they already exist on the board. You don't plant them. The next one would be like, oh, now you can plant them. Then it would be like, there's a, there's one statue on the board. Okay, there's no statue on the board, but you each get to create two, etc. So it was sort of, again, sandboxy. I was just like, here's half a rule, take it away. Here's half a rule, take it away. Here's a full rule now. And the player powers were dispersed throughout the entire thing. So Jeff and Alex did a really job of fixing the elephants, fixing the paradox rule, and then cutting it down from 15 chapters to four and just making each one a full, complete, robust rule set. So you don't have to learn half a rule ever. Right. That makes sense. Because I see where you're going with that, where you want to like slowly drip feed people right. the rules. Well, especially because the rules all had to fit on a card. Yeah. Very <laughs> so true. I couldn't fit every single plant rule on a card. So it was just like, here's how they interact. Okay, next time, here's how you make them. And you already know how they interact from the previous card. So again, the rule book was the right move. And that's another reason because it didn't restrict me in that way. That reminds me a lot of Portal though, where you... Yeah, yeah, you start without actually holding the portal gun, or you just have one portal gun, then you get the second one, and so on. Mm -hmm. Portal is uh, very much the the tone of this game. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think That Time You Killed Me is inadvertently a portal quote. No kidding. What was your favorite moment during playtesting? Was there a moment where you were like, oh, this is the fun of the game, or like where something really clicked for you? Yeah, so for a long time, the game was you won by eliminating your opponent from the future. Because that's where you invented time travel. Okay. And it wasn't that fun. So I was like, okay, you eliminate them from the past. And that was more fun. But it just, it didn't quite work. And then one day, I don't remember the order, but the ability to choose, the, the being forced to choose which era you travel in next, that was a huge step forward. Mm. But the, I remember the day that it was like, oh, any two, any two of the three boards and you win. And it just, it's such a wonderful feeling as a designer when the whole thing just unfolds in front of you and the the tensions and the, the friction disappears. I'm, I'm sure you've had this with your designs, but like, like I was saying with that rule in Sunshine City, once I got rid of the fact that you had to get rid of the columns, it just feels better not only to play, but to watch people play because they're no longer bumping up against walls all the time. And yeah, making it defeat your opponent in any two eras just felt great good and it's super intuitive as well it's like i need to have the majority of them right it's just such an intuitive thing especially for like abstract strategy games exactly good one the the other and this is a a bit of an ego stroke moment is uh, like with steve-o there's a certain type of person that this game worms into their head and so there was a gentleman at origins who came back and played it again and again and again and then messaged me about once a month for the next year, being like, is this out yet? When's this coming out? I want to play this. And Frankie, actually, who we recorded the last live episode at her house, she and her girlfriend Jenna played it. And about once a month, Jenna would be like, so is the time travel game out yet? <laughs> it's just, that that was part of what made me be like, okay, I think I'm onto something here. Because it just like, it really gets in people's heads and they just want to 
do more time travel abstracting. <laughs> that kind of feels so good. Right? It feels good, yeah. So when you, when you ask what felt good, I'm like, that felt pretty good, not going to lie. <laughs> so you're obviously a publisher, and every game that we've talked about so far has been a game that you yourself have published. Obviously, you didn't publish this one. And we've gone into like how you got published through Pandasaurus, but why did you want to go through someone else instead of yourself? Yeah, so two reasons. One is that every game we've published... Every game we've ever printed to, to date has been a card game. Pillage has some wooden turnips in it. Goblin Teeth has some dice in it. And that's it. That's as far away from cards as we've gotten. We've only ever printed card games and then occasional tokens and dice. Mm. <laughs> this game is not a card game. This game is a board and pieces and custom pieces and custom pieces of different shapes and sizes and legacy boxes that have to be unlocked in a certain order. And it's just so far outside my comfort zone that I was like, I don't want to mess this up. So we could we could have run a Kickstarter. I think it would have done pretty well. And we could have funded it. And we could have printed it. And we could have had it as a coffee bean game or a jelly bean game. But I just really didn't trust my... Not even trust. I, I knew that I didn't have that knowledge. I don't have the knowledge to do that reliably. We're in the middle of printing Cartouche at the moment. I'm getting samples because I'm like, I don't know what this is going to look like. I've never done a bag of tiles before. I've never I've never had punchboard except for the turnips in Village Pillage. And True. the turnips are the thing that people complain about the most. <laughs> so like I know that I don't have the expertise required for that. So that was one, but the main thing was that we have very strict publication guidelines for Jellybean, which is that it has to have a player count that encompasses at least 4. It has to blah blah blah. And so this didn't fit that. And I it really bugs me when I see publishers. So I'll use Stoneblade as an example. Stoneblade's an amazing publisher. They oh, did what have they done? Ascension. Oh, duh. <laughs> Ascension, Soulforge, the new Soulforge, whatever it's called, Soulforge Fusion, a bunch of other stuff. But this really great publisher and they have such a distinct brand. What a Soul, what a Stoneblade game is. Yeah. And then one day they published, I can't even remember what it's called. It's like Chicken Coop Escape. It's like <laughs> Find the Radish or something. It's something that's completely out of their brand. And it's because the guy who owns Stoneblade, Justin Gary, was like, I made this game and I think it's fun, so I want to make it. And it's a lack of discipline. Mm. <laughs> it's like, who is it for? You're regular, like, sure, you could probably sell a few thousand copies, but you've diluted the brand. Now when I think Stoneblade, I'm like, oh, they do this type of game and whatever he feels like doing that day. So Jellybean Games, they all have a play range of four. So that's two to six, two, two to five, three to six, etc. Four to ten, I think, is, is the other play range that we mostly do. They have all these very specific things that they are, and this just wasn't any of those. Yeah, I really like that. One thing we talked a lot about in the past year with the Jelly Bean was making sure that the brand was strong and like having distinct brands for different projects. So if we want to do those other ones, we can publish it under a different brand and keep it consistent. Yeah. The only way I would have done it is if I'd made a dedicated two-player brand. Because I've been playing a lot, of, especially during the pandemic, I've been playing a lot of two-player games. And I love a good two-player game. I've been playing a lot of Codenames Duet. I've been playing a lot of Patchwork. I've been playing a lot of Seven Wonders Duel. I really love a good two-player game. So mm-hmm. I could see making a brand to make two-player games. But A, I didn't want this to be the starting one. And B, I didn't have a bunch of other lined up. And for designers out there, which is presumably our entire audience, <laughs> if not, write in, please. And, and Taskmaster fans. And Taskmaster fans. <laughs> you should do a little research when you're pitching. And you should see... If there is a consistent brand from a publisher, if there's not, you might just be able to pitch whatever. And if they do have a consistent brand, then it'll be pretty quick and easy for you. You can see three or four games that they published. They're, they'll fit this one mold. Does my game fit that or not? WizKids is an example of a publisher that doesn't really have a brand. 
they just sort of publish what they publish whatever they think is good that's fine you don't need a brand stonemeyer on the other hand has a very strong brand and he's deviated a little bit from it in the past like between two cities was a little lighter than he likes to publish but he just loved it so much that he couldn't help himself but it wasn't like the stoneblade example where it's really outside their brand it was just slightly it was, it was a toe across the line not six feet in that direction yeah it it wasn't super high production value and it wasn't soloable which i think yeah. all the other games are oh, his, 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 his thing is that he wants his games to be the main course of an evening mm. and i really like between two cities but it's not the main course and it's the only one that they've done that's like that all right anything else that i haven't covered anything that you want to talk about there might be a lot of different directions that you want to to go with that but the floor is yours so i will mention that jeff fraser as well as doing amazing dev on this game and the rulebook and all that did come up with the title oh the title's so good how yeah. did i think of that <laughs> so the title was an ongoing problem for more than a year maybe six months but i think it was eventually stretched out to a year so i just had it in my notes as time travel game <laughs> mm. which is not a great title don't publish that the only working title i ever even liked was legacy colon a time travel game or time travel colon a legacy game with that entire thing being the title so the or was part of it like dr strange love or how i learned to stop wearing and love the bomb that's the full title which i thought was very cute and you would never get published under that name but it had the comedy and it had the like oh, it's a time travel game and a legacy game but yeah we had a whole pages of, of suggestions and thoughts and nothing was right and then one day jeff just came in and was like that time you killed me and the whole chat was like oh that's the title it simply is the only other one that came close was How I Won the Time War, which is an existing book. And if the book had been of the right tone, I think there was a serious chance that they would have just gotten the license. <laughs> because How I Won the Time War does make sense. We always wanted it to be like a sentence. We wanted that sort of first person sentence. But How I Won the Time War is a really dark and heavy and it just didn't make any sense for the tone of everything else that we'd written. This is a tangent. But I'm going to touch on it anyway. You said that it's a legacy game. Can you define what you think a legacy game is? It's not a legacy game. That was okay. the biggest problem with, gotcha. that, with that title. It's The only destruction, quote-unquote, is that you write on the envelopes. And that's it. Everything gotcha. else is purely reusable and resettable. So it's not a legacy game. It's a campaign game. And that was... It wasn't deliberate. It was just... It happened to be the best way to do it was a campaign. We could have forced some legacy elements into it. But for an abstract, I don't think you want that. You don't mm. want to write on the board and be like, this spot you can't time travel from. Yeah, I feel like the people who like legacy games and the people who like abstract yeah. strategies don't necessarily have a huge overlap. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have been a good fit. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about? The only other thing I'll mention is uh, there were two things that I really wanted in the game that we couldn't get in for production cost reasons. But in my mind, this is the canonical way to play the game. <laughs> so the first is that there's three boards, past, present, future. In all my prototypes, including the one that I pitched, they were elevated. So past was on the table present was a little bit above it and then future was above that mm. and that was the like that was what made it a 4d game right. <laughs> that and the fact that you used to be able to get on the elephants so without it, it's technically only a 3d game <laughs> people always call it 4d but really there's only <laughs> two dimensions and then time so it's a 3d game and the reason i like it so much is a it gave the game even more visual presence on the table it just mm -hmm. looked really cool people would be like even with the three boards, people stop and they're like, what are you playing? But with the elevation, people are like, oh, you are a smart person. <laughs> well, I think about how many other games have more than one board that interact with each other, right? Yeah. yeah. it's Well, Alex Cutler, who also did Dev on That Time You Killed Me and I, have been working on a massive, heavy Euro called Providence, which also has three boards, which is sort of past, present, future. <laughs> and it was very much, it was after it got signed, but way before it got published. 
and he was like, we should make a game. And I was like, I can't all make a city building time travel game. And if you play it now, you would not think of it as city building time travel, <laughs> but it does have that three board thing. I'm also working on a completely separate abstract that has three boards, but they're not used as three time eras whatsoever. Gotcha. So the reason I like the elevation is not only for the table presence, but also because it just made the, you don't duplicate going forward a little bit more intuitive because hmm. you're jumping up when you go forward. It feels like that takes your energy. <laughs> But when you go back, it's so easy. Of course you can put another one of yourself. Hmm. Like, it's not really necessary. The other thing, too, is once you've signed the envelopes, once you've signed every envelope, you determine who is the actual winner. And I really wanted this, and they couldn't do it, and I was so bummed. I wanted the final box or envelope that you open once you've unlocked everything else to have a pin. Hmm. And that says, you are the winner of this universe, but if you meet someone else with that pin at a convention, right. then you have to <laughs> challenge them to see who's the winner of the multiverse. <laughs> I just thought that would be such a fun idea. And they offered to do it as a promo, but I was like, it doesn't really work as a promo, because it would have to be a promo that you're not allowed to open. <laughs> like, hey, get this promo, put it in your box, and then never touch it, <laughs> which is not super compelling. Yeah. Oh, that's such a shame. I love that idea. Yeah. Because it's such a competitive game too. There's this idea that if you play a game a lot, you become that guy, especially in like fighting video games yeah, or whatever, yeah. where you play it all the time by yourself. <laughs> then you come and you get better than all your friends. And then you're always looking for that guy. And then that's just a really cool to meet people. If you're at a con and you're like, oh, I'd really love to play this with someone. Yeah. Oh, if you see same. someone wearing it, then you're like, oh, they won their campaign. So I guess the only other thing is, like I said, there's a lot of player powers. There's dozens. I don't know the exact number, but there's dozens of player powers in this. And my ideal form of the game would be that every player power is balanced against every other player power. And that's obviously impossible. Like even Santorini, if you oh, go yeah. online, there's like, hey, this one doesn't work against this, this doesn't work against this. So what Jeff did, I think very cleverly, is he put them in the groups of four because that's how they're coming in the envelopes. And then he playtested each of those groups against themselves. So every group of four has been extensively playtested against that envelope. And then in that final scenario that has all the mini games, the like Plants vs. Zombies inspired, like here's a bunch of ways to play it. One of those cards is mix them all together. Now people are going to do it anyway. In the same way as people are going to open the envelopes when they get bored of trying to unlock specific things. They're going to be like, let's just open it. Yeah, cool. Let's just open it. People are going to be like, let's put all the powers together. That'll be the natural thing. But yeah, Je Jeff was just like, Peter, it is literally impossible to playtest every power against every power. And my thinking was like, we just make sure that they're all a basic level of power and that it's consistent. So when I was doing it, before it got signed, I had these three base powers. The first three that you unlocked, I would playtest every player power against all three of those. And that was my way of being like, okay, if, if they're equal to each of these, then they're mathematically equal to everything. But we threw out a lot of player powers too. I had like a hundred when I pitched it because I generate infinite content. And he was like, look, this one's too similar to this. This one's not fun, this one. But then a few of them was like, this one against this one actually is a hard counter. Like if you draft this one and this one, it's just not fun. And so you could put them in separate envelopes, but that's what made me realize, oh, even though they're all balanced to the same basic three, that doesn't mean that they're all equal. Right. <laughs> you can't do it. There's not enough hours in the day. If, if we had a Kingdom Death Monster style house in Brazil <laughs> of people who were just playing that time you killed me all day every day, sure, we could do that, but... <laughs> Even then only, maybe. If you look at Magic the Gathering, think of how many people they have on their teams and they still miss things. Yeah, and, and I was thinking about Santorini. There's a... I forget what the two powers are, but I encountered that where it's not a hard counter, but it's basically their ability neuters mine. Like right. it, it's almost completely useless now. And they still get to do other things as, as well with yeah. their player power. And you can use it as a, as a constraint. So like if, if you have one that says your enemies can't push elephants, cool. But now you can never have another power that is like can't crush you with elephants. Great. Now every elephant power is useless against that. Right. 
So yeah, it's an interesting one. But I think having those like sets gives you like obviously tons of playability on top of the regular game. And then, like you said, you can't always mix them yeah, later. you can mix them. And my dream is that someday someone writes down like, hey, here's the broken combinations. <laughs> <laughs> or here's the, the ones that are super fun to pair against right, each other, right? right? Like I've got some in Santorini where it's like, these two powers just make the game super interesting yeah. how to try and play them. Very cool. I'd like to have some fun, AJ. All right. We'll I mean, have... staying here for three days and not once have I had fun. All right, we'll have a little bit of fun. <laughs> what is something that you are paranoid about? Paranoid. Paranoid means irrationally afraid of. I don't yeah. think I'm irrationally afraid of anything. I think all my fears are very rational. Okay. I don't, uh, want, I don't want to die. I, I'm I'm paranoid of some stuff. What are you paranoid about? My you top, go first. My top answer is dropping things into grates. Like if I'm walking over a grate, I will instinctively put my hand over my keys and my phone, right. even in they're in my pocket. Grates would be mine as well. I don't like walking on them. Hmm. I just will avoid them every time I can. I can walk on them. Like hmm. I can absolutely walk on them because I'm a human. Yeah. I was just traveling through Europe last week with a friend of mine, and she after the first day she was like, let's let's just let's just make paths that don't take us across grates because I would just always like clench up or <laughs> just just move to the side and walk walk beside it and stuff like that. So yeah, hmm. I think grates is is my one. I've also accidentally locked my keys in my car a couple of times. <laughs> so I will not close a door on my car with the key still in the ignition. See, that's a very rational fear. That's not paranoia. <laughs> You've done it. Well, I, I guess. But if the car doors are all unlocked... I can close the door. Nothing's going to change. Like, what's what's? That you've the issue? done it. You've done it multiple times. Yeah, but I haven't done it from that. Like one time, I dropped the keys in accidentally as I was closing right. the trunk or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, it's a little irrational. Yeah, like I, I lose papers. If you give me a piece of paper, it'll disappear. And so I don't see that as a rational fear. If I, I take photos of paper and then I try to give them to anyone who's not me. <laughs> That's my technique. I lost my car title. Did I tell you about this? No. So Alex Cutler, who's just the, the star of this episode. Hey, Alex. <laughs> I bought his car from him in North Carolina, then put it on one of those trucks, landed in Los Angeles, and I got it. And the title is gone. No idea. Thought I put it in the glove box because that's the sensible place to put it. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. I put it somewhere. It disappeared. Hmm. And then this was in March 2020. Right. <laughs> so I needed to not only get a new title, which is a whole process, but I needed to get a new title from my friend who I bought it from who had also moved state. So I just didn't have a title for about two years. And then my car got impounded and I had to pay $3,000 to get it out. It was a nightmare. Jeez. But it's a very rational fear <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to lose paper. So I really, really do lose paper. NFTs have all kinds of problems, but if they could replace paperwork, oh, it would all be worth it. It would all be worth it. <laughs> if I could just have a car title be on my phone, I'm fine. <laughs> but I have to have the physical paper and it just it's costly and painful. Our teaser for next episode is next episode, we are going to be talking about arguably one of your top specialties, Ooh. kids games. Oh, that's an interesting way to put it. I don't know if I agree, but we'll find out next time. I'd say content than kids games, no? I don't make kids games. Well, yeah, yeah. It's the it's the kids games that also work for family. No. Ooh. No. Well, uh, I've well, misled you. You've well, been misled. Well, let's save this discussion <laughs> for next episode. <laughs> what a teaser. Uh, you should go buy That Time You Killed Me. We're just reprinting it. Bunch of copies. It's now by far my most successful game, which is uh, very nice on one hand. Mm. To have a hit. On the other hand, I'm like, oh, it's the one I didn't publish. <laughs> it's funny because I've played that game so much, but I've only played the prototype and I've seen the physical copy, but it was someone else's copy. So I didn't get to see any of the modules. So I don't get to see what the hats look like yet, <laughs> which is the one thing I want. <laughs> the second printing, they're even better. The first printing, they had an issue where you could only put them on one way. 
they fixed that for the second printing. So mm. be glad that you held out, AJ. Be glad. What kind of hats are they? They're bowler hats. Bowler hats. Acceptable. If I- you ask Americans, they're top hats, because Americans don't know different hats, but they are bowler hats. Mm. I asked for top hats, bowler hats, or fez. I really wanted the fezes. Yeah. It's a very <laughs> elephanty kind of thing. And also the time travel. Come on. Doctor Who, one of the oh, Doctor's right, famous right. Fez. Yes, I'm not a Doctor Who fan, which seems out of character. But... Anyway, at that time you killed me, go buy it, and thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.